two scripture readings this morning. Uh, the first one comes from Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we're reading from verses 31 to 45. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will tell you, the king, its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as, sorry, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So the second reading is Luke 2, chapters, uh, verses 1 to 7. The birth of Jesus Christ. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration where Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. His word as we consider it this morning. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would illumine our hearts as we consider your word and consider the arrival of your king who would subdue nations, who would fulfill the prophecy in Daniel. Lord, give us eyes of faith to see and to know this, but also to commit to his service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we listen to God's Word, I, I wanted Gerald to read from Daniel 2 because it gives us an insight into the fulfillment. We, we hear of this stone that's going to demolish kingdoms, kingdoms like the Babylonian kingdom, this head of gold, which is glorious. And, and you hear the extent of, of the kingdom that is revealed that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had over, over all aspects. Um, of everything that was going on, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts in the field of the field, and the, the birds of the heaven making you rule over them. And that was Nebuchadnezzar, and that was the character of his rule. And yet there's this stone that was uncut, which is going to demolish not only the Babylonian kingdom, but also the Medo-Persian kingdom and the Greek kingdom, and finally the Roman kingdom, that kingdom of iron and clay which represents the Roman kingdom. That what Daniel is prophesying is a kingdom-crushing king who is coming. But then we have to step back for a moment and listen to this narrative of Luke. And without a commitment to the truth of what God's work is accomplishing, his his word and, and how God is fulfilling his word will we'll have a hard time gaining a sense of, of what God is revealing in Luke. It all is rather mundane and ordinary, almost oppressive in the way that Joseph and Mary have to make their way to Bethlehem. And it doesn't seem like a, a, a fitting announcement or arrival of a kingdom-crushing king. To grasp this, we, we need to have our thinking and understanding addressed by God's Word and, and reflected on this morning. We need to see that, that God is, in, in a particular way, turning the world upside right. Some of you may have heard this illustration. I've used it before. YouTube has a, has a clip of a, of a very talented speed painter. In a minute and a half, he can, he can make this painting. And he, he appeared on a particular talent show and, and was showing off to the judges what he could do. And, and in a minute and a half, he takes the time and he's busy painting on, on this black canvas. And, and you're looking at it and you're watching it. And even the judges are saying amongst themselves, this is ridiculous. What is it? They can't figure out what it is. It looks like a potato that he's drawing. And why is this so magnificent? And you just can't make sense out of it. And even as you watch it, you wonder what in the world is going on. And then the minute and a half is finished. The buzzer goes and say, time's up. What have you done? We don't understand it. And then he turns it over. And it's a portrait of the host of the program. 
He turned it over and it all, you could see it. He used the, the, the black canvas as the negative shadowing and you could see the image. And even the judges recognized, we had no idea what that was until you turned it over. And that's what God's word is doing for us this morning. Thinking about a kingdom crushing king who's coming. What do you expect? How do you anticipate this? And this is what we consider this morning. As our Christmas witness, the king arrives. But it certainly doesn't read like that, does it? And that's what we're going to wrestle with. So I like to, first of all, consider the contrast. Secondly, the commitment. Those two points this morning as we consider how we witness to the arrival of our kingdom-crushing king. The overarching contrast, the first contrast that we need to consider, and the overarching contrast that is found in God's Word is in that very first verse, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. There are two decrees. There's the decree of Caesar, that all the world, here is the iron and clay kingdom that is partly brittle and partly hard and strong, and he has made a decree. All the world should be enrolled. That's one decree, but there's another decree. That's the decree of God. The decree of God revealed to Daniel that a stone uncut by human hands is going to crush every kingdom. And it's going to establish, this king is going to establish a kingdom that's going to cover the whole world. And we have these two competing decrees. The decree of Caesar and the decree of God. The Caesar is Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was praised for his accomplishment. His predecessor, Julius Caesar, who was an uncle, and, and later Caesar would, would take power from him, or not take power, but he would be given power. He would have succession to the throne. Julius Caesar had secured the, the power of the emperor. He had placed himself on the throne. He had, he had overcome the influence of the Senate, and he was able to establish uh, the dominion of Rome. And Caesar Augustus was also known. He was the man where, where Julius Caesar conquered, Caesar Augustus organized. He was very efficient. He was a great administrator. He organized the empire so that the Senate could function once again and the military could serve in the work that they needed to do. He worked efficiently. He knew which people to use to get the job done. But he was also powerful. To resist him was dangerous. Because he was so efficient and so organized, any resistance would quickly be dealt with. In this time was the time of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and it flourished under him by his use of force, but also his use of generosity. He knew how to manipulate people to get them to do what he wanted. He was the one who was sitting on the throne. And he makes this decree that all the world should be registered. But ultimately, again, stepping back and turning things upside right, looking at things from God's Word, it's the decree of man. Man who, like a flower, flourishes in the morning, and is quickly withered by night. 
the decree of man, a sinner, whose quest for power was the praise of pride and the peace that he could affect. And yet, yet, his ways, his ways are at odds with God's ways. God shows the wonder of his grace and his control of all things. And he reveals to us that he, he, he is the one whose decree ultimately determines everything. And as the sovereign Lord, as the ruler of all things, he's even going to use the decree of the sinful man, of this proud man, of this boastful man, the decree of Caesar to accomplish God's purpose of grace. That God's decree is the one who is using Caesar's decree to accomplish the stone being cut. It's not cut by human hands. It's not originating with human authority or human power. It is a gift of God, completely in the gift of Jesus Christ. And yet, yet, as we listen to God's Word and as we consider what's going on in the lives of Joseph and Mary, that's not necessarily what it would have felt like or what it would have under what they would have understood. In fact, we don't know how extensive their understanding was. We know that they had revealed to them the gift that God was giving to them, that it was a, a supernatural gift. And yet they had to function and flourish in a time when man's decree, a decree like Caesar's, seems so powerful. Caesar's decree is a census, a census for taxation purposes. It reminds every Jew that they remain under Roman authority. They're a subject nation. And yet, even in this, there's illusions that, that display and demonstrate the wonder of God's work in the lives of Joseph and Mary. And their witness, and our witness, to the presence and the work of our King. Consider for a moment with me the remarkable contrast between someone like Caesar Augustus and Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary are so compliant and unassuming. But be careful with appearances because they stand as instruments of the Almighty God, as the work of His hands and the accomplishment of His Word. They come into this situation and we hear of what is going on with them and there is humility. They don't even get a place to sleep. There's no room for them. Something has happened here. Remember in Israel, they, 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 they had the privilege of land ownership according to tribe. And every tribe, as the tribe grew, the, the, the portion of land would get smaller. But every tribe had a God-given right to their property. But something had happened with Joseph. We don't know what. This text don't tell us. Scripture doesn't say. But Joseph is now living in Nazareth of Galilee. Not on his own land. Not on his own property. And he is horribly impoverished. 
Remember when they appear before the temple to, to dedicate Jesus? They come, they come with two turtle doves. That's the indication in the Old Testament they couldn't even afford a lamb. And God says, if you can't afford a lamb, come when you make this, this presentation of your child for the cleansing of the woman, come with two turtle doves. Something had gone horribly wrong in the life of Joseph such that he had to take up his occupation in Nazareth of Galilee. And when they come home, when they come to their own land, they can't even find a place to sleep. No room for them. And we need to recognize that their humility in which they, they go into this situation in which is displayed in the gift of the Son of God, the humility is not an indication of weakness. They're not protesting outside. They're not camping out on their rights, their privilege, that they have to have a place. They approach with humility. That is not an indication of weakness. And they come under the decree of Caesar Augustus. Submission. Submission is not a sign of surrender and resignation. Just because they follow along doesn't mean they've lost the plot and have given in to the ways of man. And simplicity. The simplicity of the arrival of the king. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. A manger for a bed. You're so poor. You can't afford anything else. They're so humble. They don't have a place even in their own hometown. They come in obedience. And in this simplicity, it's not a sign of the lack of purpose. Not a design that somehow... God's plan, His purpose is somehow being frustrated. That they come with a chip on the shoulder. No, it's just simplicity of humble obedience. And there's peace and gentleness displayed in Mary and Joseph. And that is not a sign of lack of power. In fact, I would suggest it's a display that there's a greater power, God's power, that enables them and enables us to show that contrast. And in this, we hear that God's Word is working. God's Word is working because it will be the means that Jesus, as an heir of David, as the, the, the crown prince who will be born in Bethlehem, that the decree of God is able to overwrite someone as powerful and something as significant as the decree of Caesar can be overwritten by the decree of God. And this is the way the stone in Daniel that is not cut by human hands overturns the ways of man. And this gives us a framework to consider our Christmas commitments as our Christmas witness. Is your commitment to the decree of God? To the way that God says He will work to establish the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is this displayed with gospel virtues? 
like humility, submission, simplicity, peace, and gentleness. Gospel virtues that flow from a faith and a confidence in the rule of Jesus Christ that that we have been so infused with grace as we show the work of humility, submission, simplicity, and peace, and gentleness. That the work of Christ is witnessed for others. Think about that. I know some of our Christmas celebrations may be over. Maybe you've had your work dues, your family get-togethers. Those can be painful times, can't they? They can be times of blessing and thanksgiving when we all get together and and carry on with with life and, and we encourage one another and upbuild one another, but they're not all like that. There's those occasions of pain and hurt. Oh, we might put it aside for the day just to get along, but that sometimes compounds the hurt and the fractures that are found in our lives. It brings out sometimes the best in people. But sometimes our Christmas celebrations also bring out the worst in people. And how can we witness for Christmas? And how can we witness for Christ in the midst of these trials and in the midst of these difficulties? Let us learn to read how God is actively involved in fulfilling His purposes, His purposes of grace, the purpose of His decree that with humility, submission, simplicity, peace, and gentleness, He is able to overwrite the ideas and the hostility and the contest with man. That the greatest gift to give at Christmas is to show Christ in the way we deal with others. Mary and Joseph go and they display the Lordship of Christ in a commitment to His rule. And it's important that when we speak of sovereign grace, how we recognize the sovereign of grace, the wonderful doctrines of grace that show the sovereignty, and how often we recognize that, that that God's elect are are brought from death to life. And an astounding reality, isn't it, that those who, who don't seek God actually are brought by Him to find Him and to know Him. And we say, oh, isn't God amazing in the way He turns lives around and he, he brings life to those who are dead. And we celebrate the sovereignty sovereign grace of God, but what we recognize, what applies to personal salvation, the salvation of God's elect, also applies to God's work in His church, amongst His people. That we, as the church of Jesus Christ, have the responsibility to display the Lordship of Christ and a commitment to His rule in such a way as Mary and Joseph. And when God touches our lives personally, He does that so as a community, we can encourage and uphold one another. How often we sing, lead on, O King Eternal, the day of March has come. Lead on, O King Eternal. Do you hear what that is? Lord, use that stone that is uncut by human hands to crush kingdoms. Yes, we want to see the victory of Jesus Christ secure but we need to consider the rest of that song. 
not with swords loud clashing, not with drums rolling, not with military power and strength, with deeds of love and mercy, your heavenly kingdom come. with deeds of love and mercy. It applies to the coming of Christ, that Christ is a gift that shows the love and mercy of God, that Christ is a gift which which comes in the context of humility and submission and simplicity and peace and gentleness, that Christ comes in such an unassuming way to show the security and the confidence in the decree of God that He will overcome the nations of the earth. If we are sure of God's sovereign grace for our personal salvation, we can also be confident that He will work to secure the kingdom of Christ through the church over the world. That is the extension of His kingdom. That is the confidence that we can have. That the promise of His Word and our witness for Christ can be just as Daniel in exile would show to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what the great God of heaven will do. He will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Kingdom of Christ cannot be destroyed. That's the promise of His Word. And that's our witness for Christmas. The blessing of a Christmas witness is to look at the arrival of your King and the kingdom that He has has established. And to display with confidence His virtues, His grace, His glory, humility, submission, simplicity, and peace and gentleness. People of God, those are gifts of grace. Not a grace that you have in yourself, but the grace that you've received from Christ to express to those around you. Those are gifts that like the work of Jesus Christ never wear out or need to be returned because they're broken and failing. But are never off cast because they're useless and we don't need them anymore. Instead, this is the way of Christ which God will bless. And remember that speed painter who only had a limited time to show his skill? This is the way of Christ, which God will bless and turn, and He'll use it to turn the world upside right. Because remember what we believe? His grace is sovereign. Sovereign. It's in control of everything so that we can go about our daily tasks with humility, submission, 
simplicity, poverty, peace, and gentleness. Because our King reigns. Amen.